everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. Well, good morning, friends. It's delightful to see you this morning. Um, I just love what we do. It's, that's just so cool. Uh, I love the things that we get to be a part of as a whole church family. So thanks for those of you that have already been participating in some of these things. Uh, one of the things, if you're not aware, is we've been journeying into this, this season of Lent, this unique time in our calendar as a, a people that are just seeking the way of Jesus. Uh, if you've been doing that Biola Lent devotional, and you might be hearing about this for the first time, if you want more information on this, there's a QR code on the back of the chair. It'll take you right there. But just in the last week, uh, for those of you that have been uh, watching it, uh, experiencing it, you've gotten to hear from a Russian poet, from a Nigerian artist, from a piece of music that was originally penned back in 325 AD. Uh, the, the smattering of where the content of that devotional comes from is, is just so delightful. And you may find that there are days where you wake up and go, that music is not my cup of tea. This painting is really strange and poetry. What on earth is happening right now? Uh, lean in. I, I think there's so much beauty that's there that's waiting, and it can just really help hallmark this time of year, the season of Lent. Part of why we're doing that is because we are in this sermon series right now called Worldview, and this is really based around this idea that when we engage with God, we engage typically from our context, from where we came from, from our story, from our culture. And when we start to see God from other perspectives, it's just amazing how big he becomes. And so as we're journeying into this Biola devotional, as we're journeying through this sermon series, today we're going to be talking about an aspect of American Christianity and really just American culture in general, where we tend to be fairly individualistic about our approach to the world. And that's not a bad thing. We're not here to bash that perspective. There's so much beauty that comes with that. But also there's a limit to that. And when we dig back into Scripture and the worldview of the people that were writing that Scripture, and then as Christians, as, as we look around the global church, there are so many places uh, in the world that don't think on an individual level. And for those of you that are like, I'm just here checking out Jesus. I'm not a follower of Jesus. I don't like have a huge, uh, a huge skin in the game when it comes to the global church. I think there is still an invitation here. Uh, I think our culture is catching up to something that our church sometimes is in front of, sometimes our church is behind, but it's this deep theological belief that when God created diversity, he did that because he was wanting to make things beautiful. And as we engage the diversity and see the wide range of it, it's, it's uh, just amazing what we see then when we see God. So you're invited just to come enjoy that with us today. And today we have a special guest. I'm going to welcome up to the stage now my friend David Hughes. Uh, for about the last year, our staff and our elders have been reading a book by an author named Ruth Haley Barton called Pursuing God's Will Together. And it's a book about corporate discernment. How is prayer and how is understanding what God's leading us to, not just something that I do as an individual, but how is this something that we do as a team or as a community? And uh, David is a uh, self-proclaimed recovering Southern Baptist. Um, he wanted me to share that with you. Um, but also, this is a man who loves Jesus. And this is a man who has sat with our staff and our elders all week this week. Uh, usually we're having eight to nine, nine hour days plus 
I, he's a couple of years older than me. I don't know how he's standing right now. It's amazing. <laughs> um, I'm exhausted. But David has been leading our staff and our elders through a time of going, what is it that we feel like God's calling us to next? And, uh, I, and he volunteered, um, but I'm so excited to have him be our preacher for the day as we just hear a little bit more about this idea of what does it mean to be an individualistic culture as we engage Jesus and what could it look like to be more collective and more community-based in how we do that. So please give a warm welcome to my friend, David Hughes. Thank you. Thanks, brother. Thank you, Zach. Such a pleasure and honor to be here with you today. I have to admit that I can't remember the last time I preached in blue jeans. Uh, my wife, Joni, and I uh, go to a, a little bit of a highbrow East Coast uh, church, robes, fancy clothes. And uh, I guess I grew up thinking that one of the Ten Commandments was thou shalt not wear jeans to church. So I feel like I'm uh, violating something. But honestly, it feels great. I'm going to go back and recommend <laughs> jeans uh, to the Baptists back there. Um, we're a little too fancy. What do you do when the world seems to change right before your eyes overnight? What do you do in that situation? I want to take you back to March of 2020. And many of us remember the week or maybe even the day when COVID changed America. Um, and we're still dealing with the impact of COVID. Even now, in March of 2023, think back with me about the fallout from the advent of COVID. One of the things we lost was in-person community. Now, we found virtual community. I, may, I might have done two Zoom calls before COVID hit. You know, now it's a daily occurrence. Um, we found a way to connect, but it wasn't the same. Many of us experienced traumatic isolation during that time. And then there's the loss of, of friends and loved ones to this disease, which I know something about because I lost my 92-year-old dad to COVID. Um, brutal time. The hardest part actually was not losing my dad. He had lived a good long life. The hardest part was not being able to be with him as he suffered with COVID. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one in this room that went through something like that, either losing a loved one or a friend to COVID or to another illness, but you still couldn't be with them because of the limitations of COVID. There was a loss of sense of normalcy. What is normal? What is the new normal? There are still conversations about that. We're still figuring that out. A loss of sense of safety. Uh, when you're in a space like this, or even more when you're in a plane or in a confined space with a lot of people, are you safe or are you not? And do you need to mask or do you not? And we're still figuring out 
what safety looks like now. But COVID not only affected individuals, it, it affected institutions, including the church. Um, I serve as a spiritual director, and some of you might not be familiar with that term. A spiritual director is someone who comes alongside another person and accompanies them in their spiritual life as together they attempt to to discern what is God doing, what is God saying, what might that mean for any and all aspects of your life. Most of the directees, as they're called, uh, that I see are pastors or are church leaders. And I have heard many tales of woe from these folks um, all over the country and some outside the country. Let me tell you what church leaders have been through lately. They've been through, they've had to wade through streams of toxic politics, going all the way back to the 2016 election through the 2020 election, and people became really polarized as those elections took place. And uh, it affected not only our country, it affected the American church. We became about as divided as the country is. And that is especially true if you live in a state like Colorado. And by the way, is it Colorado or Rado? I don't know. You all can tell me later. Um, if you live in a state like Colorado or where I live, North Carolina, both purple states... Both, at least both transitioning, and man, did the ads come just slammed with ads, which only agitated people more. And, uh, and then there was, of course, COVID. And then if you were a pastor, your response to COVID was interpreted through a political lens. So if you were in favor of having in-person worship Sooner rather than later, that meant one thing politically. If you were in favor of delaying in-person worship for a while, that meant another thing politically. If you wanted masks, that meant one thing. If you didn't want masks, that meant another. And people became really agitated. And I had pastors telling me that their boards were divided, the congregation was divided, and they felt like they couldn't win no matter what they did. On top of that, in 2020, George Floyd died in a tragic incident with police. That sparked all kinds of really hard and difficult racial conversations and created, just added to the tension. And as if that weren't enough, suddenly it felt like for a lot of churches, all the issues surrounding LGBTQ folks became really pressing and urgent and had to, had to be discussed, had to be confronted. And is it any wonder that church leaders and church members experienced a lot of trauma through all of that? Many pastors felt like they were in the crossfire as they began to wonder, who's with me in this church now? You know, people stopped coming. Some people are coming back, but not everybody. We don't even know exactly who's in the church anymore. And what is the church 
now in a post-pandemic world or in a, pan, in a world where the pandemic is still playing out. I want to tell you, if you're asking that question here, you should know people are asking that question everywhere. It is everywhere. Fortunately, we're not the first Christ followers to confront this kind of seismic change. We have the benefit of reading 2,000 years after the fact how the early church dealt with seismic changes in a way that culminated in a process we could call corporate leadership discernment. And that discernment produced a result that literally defines the church to this day. Now remember that after Jesus' death and resurrection, all the first Christians were Jews. And male Jewish Christians were required to be circumcised. And men and women alike were expected to know the Jewish law and to obey the Jewish law to the letter. These were the first Christ followers to come along. Then things got really interesting. And you can read about the big development that occurred in Acts chapter 10, where the, the apostle Peter has this really strange vision um, on, on the, the top level of a home around noon. And it says that he was really hungry. Uh, we could also say that maybe he had a bad burrito the night before. We don't know. But he has this vision where a big sheet comes down from heaven. It's filled with animals that Jews have for hundreds of years have considered unclean. And he hear, hears God say, Peter, go ahead and kill one of these animals and eat it. And Peter says, well, wait a minute, God. You know, because you gave us the Torah, you know full well that we're not allowed to eat these animals. God says, what I created is not profane. Kill and eat. And this, can you imagine? Peter is arguing with God. Imagine that, about what's right and what's wrong. The Bible says, back here, we can't eat this. God says, I'm changing that now. Whoa. You talk about an upsetting development. Peter's blown away, and before he can even recover from this vision, a man named Cornelius shows up with some other Gentiles and says, we were sent here by God to seek you out and to listen to what you have to say to us Gentiles. So Peter preaches a, a short sermon, and before he even finishes the sermon, the Gentiles start speaking in tongues. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. Peter is blown away by this. This is not supposed to happen. And so on the spot, he baptizes uncircumcised Gentiles. Whoa. First time in the early history of the church that that happens. Well, we keep reading, and um, later unnamed missionaries convert still more Greeks in a variety of places. Barnabas is sent by the, the nervous mother church in Jerusalem and comes back with a wonderful report about what's going there on there. Still later, Paul and Barnabas 
travel to Cyprus where they lead a prominent governor, government official, another Gentile to Christ. Then they move on to other places and finally land in Antioch. And there the floodgates open and wave after wave of Gentiles are converted. These are heathens. These are uncircumcised. These are untutored in Jewish law. These eat unkosher food. These wear blue jeans to church. (laughs) And Lord knows what else these people are doing. And the old guard is sitting there going, no. Remember Dr. Seuss, those Pharisees, they don't like it. Not one little bit do they like what they see and hear. And so that's the background to our scripture today, which I want to read now to you, and I think it's going to be up on the screen behind me, from Acts 15, verses 1 through 20. So then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church, and as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of all the Gentiles and brought great joy to all believers." When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met together to consider this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, My brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and in cleansing their hearts by faith, he has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear? On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, my brothers, listen to me. Simeon, it's another name for Simon Peter, has related how God first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written, and he reads here from the prophet Amos, or recites from the prophet Amos, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it, and I will set it up, so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago, 
Therefore, I've reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. Well, so the presenting question, as you might call it, for the debate was, should new Gentile Christians undergo circumcision and obey Jewish law? But a lot of times, the presenting question is not the final question. They're actually what we in the discernment business call questions beneath the questions. And there are two questions beneath this question. And to summarize or to quote John Stott here, one of those questions is, is belief in the Jesus who died for me and was resurrected from the dead, is that enough to be saved or do I need to be circumcised too? And do I need to believe and follow Jewish law too? And then another question, going forward, what will the church of Jesus Christ look like? Will it just be a reform movement? Will it be a sect inside of Judaism going forward? Or will it be a movement of faith for the whole world, an international family? Do you see that these are huge questions? And I want us now to pay attention, close attention, to how the early Christians answered them. Notice in the first place that one person did not go away to a mountaintop and get the answer and come back and say, this is it, and this is how we're going to go forward. That didn't happen here. That's a model of leadership. One person goes to the mountain, gets the answer, comes back, here we go. I want you to notice, too, based on the account in Acts 15, that there was no political posturing, no spinning, no campaigning. Now, I'm sure none of you have ever seen campaigning and posturing going on in church. But it's important to notice here that that did not happen, at least not according to the account we have. Instead, what happened is they called together what became known as the Jerusalem Council. And they engaged in what could be described as corporate leadership discernment. Corporate or community discernment. This gets right to the point that Zach was making earlier. This wasn't a one-man or one-woman operation. It was a community involved in decision-making and discernment. And I want you to notice that there was a lot of listening going on. Let's just name the listening. First of all, they li- the, the people that gathered there for the council listened to each other. And notice there were the, the word debate occurs here. Now, sometimes we think that debate should not happen among Christ followers. False. There are times when debate, as long as it's healthy and honest, is absolutely called for. 
They listen to each other in debate. Then they listen to the experience that Peter, Paul, and Barnabas had. They came back and said, let me tell you what we saw. Let me tell you what we heard. Let me tell you what we observed right before our eyes. And they gave what I would call the facts on the ground in all these places. They listened to those experiences. They listened to their tradition, in particular the Pharisaic tradition, which said, hey, you got to be circumcised. you got to follow the Jewish law. That doesn't just go away because of Jesus. They listened. They ultimately didn't agree with that, but they did listen to it. They listened to Scripture. James read from the prophet Amos. So they listened to that reading of Scripture, and they absorbed that and digested that as they tried to make this decision. And they listened to their own emotions. Did you catch that there was great joy in the believers, many of them at least, over the reports of conversion? One of the things that discernment involves is listening to what's going on inside of you. About 500 years ago, a man named Ignatius put names to these emotions when we, are, when we notice that we're full of life and well-being and excitement, when our pulse begins to beat a little faster, not just at the surface level, but in a bodily, visceral experience and at a deep level, this man called that consolation. When there's deep joy, consolation. Conversely, when we're feeling at disease, when we're feeling drained, unsettled, anxious, uneasy, a sense that something's off, that something's wrong. He called that desolation. They listened internally to what was going on because that's a part of this new way to, or different way of making decisions called discernment. And then finally, James the half-brother of Jesus, by the way, James, who seemed to serve as the facilitator of this conversation, others have labeled him the discernmentarian of this conversation. James gets up, gathers all that's been said, and then renders a decision. He affirms Gentiles as new Christ followers. He invites them out of sensitivity to Jewish tradition to abstain from certain foods and abstain from inappropriate sexual relationships and absolves them of any obligation to be circumcised and follow the Jewish law. In this process, I want you to notice everybody speaks. You know what that means? No one person has all the wisdom. Not even the lead pastor. No one person has all the wisdom. Everybody speaks or is invited to speak because the Holy Spirit resides in all of us, not just one. Again, 
a commentary on this individualistic culture that Zach was talking about a moment ago. Notice everybody listens. You know, I speak for a living, or did. You know what I've realized? Listening well is a lot harder than speaking well. I've had to work on my own listening. Because what I want to do is while you're talking, I want to form the argument that I'm going to come right back at you with. Listening well means you stop doing that and you just listen openly, fully to what's being said. Everybody listens. And then we read on in Acts 15, 28, that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us And in this case, they actually make a unanimous decision. Now, I don't know how they got those Pharisees, past Pharisees, to come across the line, but they did. The truth is, not every time when we have a conversation like this will the feeling be unanimous. But a sign that the Spirit is is at work is unity in the body which might take the shape in many ways. People might have reservations here and there, but finally at the end of the day, they trust one another enough that even if they have reservations, they agree to move forward. Unity is a sign that the Spirit is in it, the Spirit is at work. And the result opens the church up to everyone, everywhere, And it means that Gentiles, like you and me, can follow Jesus. Friends, do you see what an important thing, what an important decision was made on that day? If that decision hadn't been made, it's possible you and I wouldn't be here right now. This was pivotal for the future of the church. And it was made through a process called Corporate leadership discernment. Now, the last few days, as Zach said, I've been meeting with your staff and your elders. Wonderful people. Oh, my gosh. I told Zach before the service this morning, I said, it occurred to me, you know, I I agreed to come out here for a week to spend time with people I don't even know. They don't know me. What if I hadn't liked these people? Boy, it would have been a long week for me and for them. That's not what happened. I fell in love with your elders and your staff. Wonderful people. And they've been asking some questions similar to those early Christians 2,000 years ago. What does the church of Jesus look like, act like going forward? Or to be more specific, what does God have in mind for Discovery Christian Church, March 2023 and forward? So this week I've gotten to know some things about your history. So much of it, wonderful. You know, next year you celebrate your 25th anniversary. Did you know that? Do you know how many church plants don't make it to five years, much less 25? A whole lot don't make it. And Zach has explained to me how 
few church plants here. It's not exactly, Colorado's not exactly the most fertile soil in some ways for church plants. So it's a big deal that you've made it almost to 25. And it hadn't always been smooth sailing, has it? There have been some moments, hard moments, but also some wonderful moments along the way. But seismic changes are going on in our world, in our culture, in your state, in this community. What does God's future look like here? Well, your pastor sensed the need to tackle the big question of vision for the future of discovery, but he didn't do this by himself. You know, being this close to Breckenridge, he could have just gone up to Breckenridge, gotten somebody's cabin, sat for a couple days, wrote everything down, came, come back and say, okay, discovery, here we go. That's an often used leadership model. It's very individualistic, but it's often used. That's not what Zach Krieger decided to do. He convened a council of leaders, staff and elders in your case, similar to the way the Jerusalem church decided to act. And by the way, you should understand that this mean, this meant he was giving up a lot of control about how this whole thing went. That's not easy for a pastor who is often judged by outcomes that he can't possibly or she can't possibly control. And in this case, really doesn't control at all. You know what I didn't see this week? I didn't see any political posturing. I didn't see any campaigning. I didn't see any spinning of the truth. Instead, what I saw was prayerful discernment preceded by months of preparation, working through a book on spiritual rhythms and practices, and then another book about corporate leadership discernment, both written by the woman I work with and work for, a woman named Ruth Haley Barton, who leads the Transforming Center. Let me say a word about the result, and I think it's at this point I'm supposed to cue the band to come to the stage. What happened this week is not mine to report out. It's theirs to report out, the elders and the staff. And soon you're going to have the opportunity to participate in the conversations that took place this week. But I do want to speak to one piece that occurred. Your leadership community, as I call them, met separately, staff for three days, elders for two days, and they prayed together three or four times a day. They listened prayerfully, carefully to one another. They had healthy, honest debate. They loved one another. They loved one another. There was vulnerability in the room. There were tears in the room. They loved one another. And if they look tired today, 
It's because they went through a lot. They went down deep. And when you do that by yourself or with another person, that's work. That's the hardest work there is. And I think what they've discovered in the process is that community is key. Community is key. If you read Acts 2 and Acts 4 about those earliest Christ followers, you read phrases like they spent much time together. They were practically together every day. They attended to the teaching of the apostles, which now we call the gospel. But they also fellowshiped. They broke bread together. They prayed together regularly, daily. And that's exactly what happened this week with your leadership community. It's been said that community, authentic, genuine community, is the most overpromised, underdelivered part of church. And I think it's right, sadly. Community is the most overpromised, underdelivered part of the Christian church. This week, community came, and it came wonderfully among your staff and among your elders. And I think it's going to go even deeper and become richer as the days go forward. And it was beautiful to watch and, a, and an honor and a privilege to see it. And like Peter and Paul and Barnabas, I want to report to you that wonderful things happen among your wonderful staff leaders this week. And you can trust the same Holy Spirit that led Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James to lead you toward your vision in the days ahead. And personally, I can't wait. I can't wait to see what God is going to do this beautiful church called Discovery Christian Church. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for the Trinity. We thank you for God. We thank you for Jesus. And this week as we consider this new process to some of us called discernment, we sure thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for how the Holy Spirit moved this week among the leadership of this church. And I pray that you will move in mighty ways that will remind us of what happened in Acts as Discovery Christian Church comes together in community, listens to you and to one another, and follows you into their future. I pray for them as they do this, and I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.